Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Lorian DeMello, who's a senior lecturer in applied finance and energy markets, and also the co-chair of the Australasian Commodity Markets Conference held by Macquarie University. Welcome, Lorian. Hi, Alex. How are you? Very well. So this is going to be a conversation about renewables and alternate energy. Um, I thought the place to start this conversation was really um, some of the ideologies and and factions that sit within this space. There really seems to be uh, different camps, um, and I was hoping that you could maybe kick us off with with how to sort of think about it. Yeah, I guess um, the you know the climate guys have been fighting off the coal industry for for many many years, and that has kind of escalated even more as we've set you know targets to meet certain emission reductions. And unfortunately, you know that's where it lies. It's like more like to do with the coal industry versus renewables. But it's, it's a bigger picture than that. Um, you know, we need to kind of look at all the energy options. Um, electricity generation is, uh, is, is a key factor. Uh, we want uh, cheap energy prices. But unfortunately, you know, with one camp going against the other one, you know, using sometimes very extremist kind of views, scare tactics. So this comes from the climate guys as well. Sometimes some of their modeling is not really backed up. Uh, with with proper you know hypothesis and and development, so we need to kind of bring a balance you know in terms of how Australia is going to address its energy future. Is is there a lot of pressure from different scientific groups you know with with you know, a lot of government funding to sort of push one way or the other? Yeah, I guess um, we we need to we need to respect the the scientific findings and we need to respect the climate scientists you know who have warned us about you know, temperatures rising. I mean, no doubt about that. But how do we address that? You know, this is where the problem is. Um, I mean, the fossil fuel industry has a lot of subsidies behind it. Um, the, the renewable energy would require even large amounts of money and support from government in terms of funding uh, to come up with more efficient ways of delivering renewable energy. Uh, we are getting there slowly, but we are not there yet. I mean, people need to understand that why coal is still very important and some people say coal is king and will be king for probably another 20, 30 years is because, you know, the, the, the energy intensity that you get from coal cannot really be matched by some of the other options. Uh, how do you measure energy intensity? You know, I mean, we can look at, you know, energy density, we can look at energy return over energy investment. Uh, how, how do you measure the efficiency of a particular type of energy? So, you know, the scientific community and the economists and the, you know, climate guys, you know, your petroleum engineers, your guys who are doing scientific research on improving um, battery storage, all these guys need to communicate together. And, you know, rather than each side putting their own foot in, um, claiming that their energy source is the best. So how should we then think about sort of, you know, you, you talk about coal being king. Is there particular um, approaches, obviously, you know, for, for things like uh, steel production, you need a huge amount of energy. Renewables don't seem to be the, the way to actually 
generate the heat to actually make steel? You know, is there still going to be then different places as we look at the market in terms of different energy sources for different applications? Yeah, um, yeah, coal. I mean, coal, coal, and and steel production is is very interesting because, I mean, I remember the time when I did a three month stint at BHP uh, back in Perth during the uni days. Um, I worked on the project. The, they had this hot briquetted iron project uh, in up up the northern part of Western Australia, and over there, I mean, the BHP was producing the steel briquettes. Now, to produce steel, from my understanding, is that if you don't want the iron ore to go into liquid formation, if you want to go directly from iron ore to steel, you need to use this thing called direct reduced iron. So the way it does you use coke from coal um, and you use that and mix it with your iron ore to produce um, steel. So to replace that, the only other option would be to use, say, hydrogen. So hydrogen direct reduced iron. Now, hydrogen is very, very expensive to produce. Um, it is, you know, people don't realize that you need large amounts of hydrogen to get the same amount of intensity in terms of output. So, for example, if you use 100 units of hydrogen and you're going to use that in some sort of a combustion or some sort of a process, by the time you lose the heat and lo you lose the energy, you might only use 20%, you know, or 20 units of that hydrogen. So coal will, will play an important role. Um, you know, with the recent move towards, you know, having manufacturing done over here, you know, what are we going to manufacture? I mean, if you start manufacturing steel, instead of just digging out iron ore and exporting it, we would need coal. Um, there's no other substitute to produce steel than coal. It's an interesting piece because, you know, particularly now when we've got a bit of an economic crisis on our hands due to coronavirus and, and there's this constant push for infrastructure, a lot of this infrastructure is going to need steel um, and, and very energy intense, uh, you know, uh, sources. So I guess now the challenge is how do we then potentially reduce our energy emissions at the same time, try to you know, maintain this infrastructure binge and also the, the real estate binge. You know, there's a lot of apartments that are being built and commercial towers that are being built. Um, but a lot of the inputs here, again, need huge amounts of energy to to get them going. That's correct. And and pretty much on the back of the government's announcements of, of giving, you know, $25,000 away for home renovations and so forth. I mean, Definitely, I mean, steel demand is going to increase. I mean, we can see Australia's iron ore exports to China have started to increase. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why perhaps the Aussie dollar has recovered. So it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a huge market and, and not just China, but globally, we would need a lot of um, steel to, if you want to have, you're going to get construction going to, to support a recovery. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you talked about some of the, the subsidies that the governments are providing. I know the renewable um, players in the market are always screaming and saying that coal's being given subsidies. And you mentioned that some of the renewable people are also getting subsidies. Can you give a bit more clarity on on sort of that backdrop? Yeah, um, I mean, we, we, need to, we need to develop our renewables. Um, I think it is, it is important that we do come up more, more with more efficient ways of um, utilising you know, our, our sun, for example. So solar is, is, is very important um, and how that solar energy is harnessed and, and stored and then fed into the grid. I mean, this is, this is all would need, any industry needs subsidies, you know, in the beginning. 
So we, we, we hope that the subsidies are going in the right areas, you know, to, to develop the technology, to develop uh, battery storage capability. Uh, and this is something where, for example, you know, people who criticize solar, they straight away start attacking about the storage and the battery problem. Um, that goes with, um, in, you know, electric cars or, you know, solar powered or solutions um, where pretty much you need to, um, you know, to, uh, I guess, um, you know, you need to, you need to improve the battery storage problem. But at the same time, we need to realize that that's not the right argument. Um, if, if a battery in a car, for example, you know, I think on average, it's around you know, half a million kilometers you can get out of the battery. Um, you need to move away and, you know, perhaps find you know, find ways of using the battery to store the electricity perhaps at home. So, you know, extending the life cycle of a product is, is important. Yeah, the, the whole piece about batteries has also been really interesting because there seems to be a lot of energy that goes into making these these batteries, a lot of minerals that goes into it. You know, if as we think about the whole energy cycle, you know, to, to create this energy, we need other energy. You know, how do we look at that whole footprint? You know, these batteries um, you need to be reconditioned, but they obviously don't last forever. You know, is there some other unintended costs that come alongside some of these new forms of energy? Yeah, I mean, I mean, with the batteries, with all renewables, you need minerals, um, and and the the amount of minerals. If you, if you are going to move towards a, a huge proportion or huge energy mix towards renewables, you would require some some really rare earth minerals or some common minerals. So mining activity would have to increase by a huge amount to actually support the renewable industry. Um, and, and this is again, so what do we do? We have the mining guys or people who are against mining will start protesting that say, you know, stop the mining or they'll try and block it. So we cannot move away from fossil fuels. We cannot move away from mining. So it is, it is important that uh, we have a right mix. That's why, you know, not just sticking to one side of the equation is, is, is not a good idea. We need to kind of get the solar guys, the wind guys, you know, gas, uh, LNG, all these infrastructure issues uh, have to be solved by getting all the players together and coming up with a, a proper energy roadmap for Australia. Hey, you, you talked about natural gas there. You know, that, that's been seen as one of the ways to transition towards renewable energy. You know, what, what's your feeling on, on natural gas um, as, as, a, as a viable solution and also a cost-effective solution? Yeah, I guess, um, I mean, we could spend like 30 minutes just talking about gas. Um, I mean, the, 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 the essence of gas in Australia is that the, the local domestic gas is, is so expensive compared to gas that you can purchase overseas. Now, we're talking about LNG here. Um, so you can buy LNG cheaper in Asia than, than you can over here. And within Australia, we have a different LNG price for the East Coast to the West Coast. Now the government has proposed, you know, to build a pipeline from the west to the east because gas is cheaper in the west. Um, I mean, to me and to a few other energy economists, I mean, this doesn't make sense because I think it's around $6 billion it's going to cost, you know, to dig up the earth, to install pipelines. I mean, Australia is a big country, right? Um, we are not like the US or, or some sort of a European country, a small country where you could perhaps have a network of gas. Um, you know, Germany, for example, might have pipeline or gas coming from Russia uh, and some other countries, but Australia is too wide. I mean, you can imagine 
the cost it's going to, I mean, this is a 6 billion figure. It's probably going to end up being 10 billion. So having piped gas in Australia is probably not a good idea. But dismissing gas completely is also not a good idea. I mean, let me say this. Um, diesel, for example, right? Diesel produces a lot of, a lot of emissions, yeah? nitrogen oxide. But nobody talks about phasing away from diesel. Now, could LNG be the fuel to replace diesel? Uh, Volvo, for example, is already manufacturing uh, LNG trucks. Now, you know, companies would not put so much money into R&D to come up with these vehicles if they didn't feel that eventually there would be pressure for diesel to, to, be, to be wiped off. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting that, that you talked about diesel um, for trucks. The, I guess the other big transport um, issue is, is aircraft, jet fuel. Um, you know, how can jet fuel change? I know there's been talks about hydrogen. You know, is there any real opportunity there for a change in the next sort of 20 years? Um, definitely not. I think jet fuel will be here forever. And I guess this is why, you know, we cannot just stop oil or refining oil. Um, jet fuel, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not an engineer, but I would say at least for another 60, 70, maybe even 100 years, you know, jet fuel uh, would be in use. Um, I mean, jet fuel is a very complex process. I mean, to my knowledge, I think it's manufactured by actually combining three types of kerosene. So they, you have a jet A1 fuel, which they use for like long haul international flights. And then you have a slightly lower version of the jet fuel, which is used for short haul flights. So, you know, replacing, um, you know, I mean, hydrogen is far so, so far away. I mean, we did, uh, for example, hydrogen buses were trialed in Perth in 2007, and I actually re remember riding on them. And after that, there was no mention about hydrogen at all. Um, so I think public transport systems, um, trains, for example, um, they've already trialed, had a very successful trial of a hydrogen-powered train in, in Germany. They're also trialing hydrogen-powered trains in the UK. Um, so there is a lot of R&D still going on with, with the use of hydrogen. But how do you switch? You know, hydrogen, is, you know, gives you zero emissions. Well, not technically, you know, all zero, but um, that's beyond this conversation. Um, but hydrogen is, is, is looks like a, a likely replacement sometime in the future. But right now, I think hydrogen for aircrafts is, is a long, long uh, away. Look, you, you talk about sort of the buses and trains and, and running hydrogen there. Look, how, how do you then get to economies of scale to be able to deliver these? You know, Australia is, you know, a big country and, and some long distances that need to be covered. Is there the, the energy that's available to, to power um, these types of transport? Yeah, so I guess, I mean, in, in California, for example, they've, they've had uh, hydrogen uh, buses running for some time, but they've also had problems in infrastructure. So hydrogen is not only very expensive to produce. Um, right now, around 90 to 95% of hydrogen is what we call brown hydrogen. So that is produced from natural gas. I mean, eventually we want to get to green hydrogen, but how do we get that? I mean, there are different ways of you know, using chemicals and using, I mean, the CSIRO does some great work in this area in terms of you know, how we're gonna get to green hydrogen. Uh, but brown hydrogen is, is, has to be, you know, the intermediate sort of solution if you want to go down the hydrogen economy path. So Australia is a big country, but, you know, 
In terms of refueling um, for cars, I think hydrogen for cars is, is again, a long time away. Um, but hydrogen for buses, yeah, you could have uh, each state having refueling stations, uh, you know, with, you know for, for hydrogen. Um, solar and, and, you know, electric vehicles, I mean, the, the charge time for electric vehicles is, is much longer. But we need to give people the option, you know, we need to open the markets up for, you know, electric vehicles as well. And, and this is where the problem comes with, um, I guess, people think electric vehicles, Tesla, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Now, Tesla, Tesla, I mean, you know, costs, I don't know, 60, 70 grand, you know, and up for a, for a, for a Tesla car. So it's still now is for the wealthy. But there are Toyota and Nissan and all these other guys are, are producing smaller vehicles, electric vehicles. But unfortunately, we don't see many of them over here as we do in, say, Europe. I think I think your uh, your your numbers on Tesla are pretty generous. I think maybe sixty US are over a hundred as last I've seen in in the Australian market. So they're still very expensive. The, mm. the the piece I wanted to to touch on there, and you talked about infrastructure, but how you know how do you think about the infrastructure to deliver? Like if it's hydrogen, for example, how do you then fuel this out? Um, even electric. Um, power, you know, if you need charging of your car, you're driving down the east coast of Australia, for example. You know, mm -hmm. the the infrastructure that needs to be built to be able to deliver um, that power to all these EV vehicles, you know, is that really being thought out properly? No, I don't think so. I mean, this is the thing. I think the government's kind of jumped onto this hydrogen bandwagon and and perhaps gone a few steps ahead. I mean, there's no clear guidance, you know, you're right, on the, on the infrastructure side of things, except for building a pipeline, you know, to transport gas. So we don't, we don't want to make the mistakes of what California did with its hydrogen infrastructure. So perhaps, you know, we need to consult them or we need to consult, you know, you know people who are experts in hydrogen as to how we're going to build this infrastructure. But, you know, for, for, for the common person who drives their car, I mean, that's, that, that's not going to happen for a long time. So I think the infrastructure has to be built by, say, utility companies. Uh, Origin, for example, I think has already developed quite a bit of, uh, put a lot of resources in, in terms of developing the hydrogen. So utility companies have to take the lead. Um, and then, I guess, public transportation, you know, has to be introduced. I mean, the fact is, Alex, um, you know, car companies, truck companies, you know, train, people building trains are, are actually building, you know, vehicles that will run on hydrogen. So it's not that you build the infrastructure and then say, hey, guys, you know, stop producing the internal combustion engine, now switch over to, to um, you know, hydrogen vehicle. That's, that's probably not going to happen. Um, as you said, you know, hydrogen is expensive. Um, there is a lot of work to be done in terms of the R&D, you know, to find economies of scale with hydrogen. And we want green hydrogen ultimately. You know, so you don't want, again, to deal with, you know, for the next 50 or 60 years, just dealing with, you know, hydrogen that's produced, you know, 90% produced from fossil fuels. We want to bring that fossil fuel contribution to hydrogen generation a bit down. Mm -hmm. Let's stay on the on the fuel piece. And, and one of the areas that we've tried to be convinced by by some of the motoring companies is that ethanol is is a great addition to to fuels. Um you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on the inclusion of ethanol and does it really actually help emissions? Yeah, um, just yeah, going, going to fuels. I mean, in Australia, we have the E10. Now, the E10 
was first blended with a 91 RON fuel, yeah, so the, the, uh, your common unleaded fuel. Now you can see ethanol being blended with 94. But the problem with fuel in Australia is, again, you know, we are so, you know, kind of obsessed with this whole coal industry emissions that transportation fuels is something that's been neglected. Now, the 91 fuel, you know, it's, it's highly, it produces a higher sulfur out of all the fuels. So, but there are no incentives from the government. I mean, the excise tax and GST or the excise tax is pretty much the same across any fuel type. Now, that doesn't make sense. Um, you know, you should be encouraging motorists to move away from 91 or you have to kind of find some sort of a roadmap to completely eliminate 91 out of the market. Now, if you go to Europe, uh, Germany in, in particular, um, their ethanol fuel is blended with 95 and some in some petrol stations also with 98. So they have like gotten rid of their 91 run fuel um, for, for a very long time. So that's why we are not taking the immediate steps of addressing you know, the, 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 the sulfur dioxide, the nitrogen oxide, all these issues. We are kind of always focused on CO2 emissions. So we need to make sure that our 91 fuel, although it's ethanol, I mean, which is good. Um, the same thing in biodiesel. I mean, there was a big push towards biodiesel, but then at the end of the day, diesel is highly polluting. You know, so, so is gasoline, but we, we need the gasoline. And, and ethanol is produced from different agricultural grains. So there's this issue with food and clearing of land to, 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 you know, to plant these crops to, to, to make the ethanol. So there are, there are, I guess, you know, different sides on, on, on how, how you see it. But the main thing is we need to get rid of that 91 fuel. So you're suggesting that there's just like one particular 95 fuel that, that's there with ethanol as a blend rather than the, these options of 91, 95, 98. I think there's, there's a whole range of things floating around at the moment. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's like um, not jumping ship. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about affordability, right? And that's one of the things that uh, we need to look at. You know, we we want we don't want the the price of fuel to suddenly increase, but you know, we we want to reduce uh, you know fuels or to improve the quality of fuels that can produce the less least amount of, of emissions. Now that that also goes hand in hand with like emission standard cars. Now, we have this Euro 5, Euro 6 emissions. Now, the Australian government has pushed back Euro 6 you know, emission standards, uh, I think, to 2023. Uh, and this is something, you know, we need to take steps in addressing these issues um, rather than just jumping straight down, say, the hydrogen path. Um, and it's only if you take care of the immediate, um, you know, fuel issues, that's, that's where you're making a start or you're building onto a roadmap towards, you know, reducing our emissions. Can you give a bit more clarity on, on what that, Euro, Euro, I think you said Euro 6 standard is? Yeah, so, so I mean, again, I'm, I'm not a mechanical engineer or a petroleum engineer, but um, I think for my understanding is it's to do with the engine technology and, it, and it, it's also to do with how the fuel burns with the engine. So it's not it's not a target or anything as such, but it's more to do with the engine technology and and that gives you the least amount of emissions as possible. Now these are I mean right now I mean the Euro six uh, standard diesel vehicle I think produces around the same amount of of emissions as as a as a petrol or a gasoline driven vehicle. 
So, but we are still back onto that Euro five. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so so we, we need to address these issues first. Um, we all, we also have you know hybrid cars. I mean, you know, we just started on this concept of hybrid vehicles to to again to reduce our emissions. But then you know, do we see a whole flood of you know Toyota Camry hybrids or a Prius? I mean, there, there isn't. Uh, people are still hanging on to you know conventional fuel type vehicles. Mm-hmm. Let's let's switch the conversation a little bit to to the superannuation industry. Um, mm-hmm. A number of them have been under pressure um, from their members actually to to move towards more ESG, environmentally sustainable um, you know, investments. And it's been a lot of work that's been done in terms of trying to move away from some of the coal assets and towards renewables. Sort of curious to get your thoughts in terms of you know the investability of some of these areas for, for pension funds? Yeah, I guess, um, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, some of these projects could be high risk and, you know, and it all depends on, on what the members want. I mean, you have to be careful that, you know, you cannot take a huge amount of risk with any unproven technology or un- unproven sort of path that is kind of like, you know, I mean, ESG investing is like is huge. I mean, I think it, before the crash, I think some of the super funds were returning twenty percent, fifteen percent returns uh, compared to like a, a say a normal balanced fund or you know a, a, a domestic fund or an international fund um, focused mostly on equities. So I think ESG investing in that is is is. Um, important for super funds um, but I think super funds also need to invest in their own industry now for me working at, uh, at the university we have uni super so perhaps uni super you know should be investing more or you know, on university projects sustainability projects um, these are important um, oil companies for example you know are being held to account I think there's some litigation cases going on in the US right now against BP where you know, everyone, shareholders are demanding what is your, you know, emissions target or what, what role are you playing in terms of, uh, you know, ha- having more action towards climate change, you know, where are your priorities, you know, what are you investing in in terms of renewables? So shareholders are demanding this kind of information. Um, so eventually, I guess, you know, members uh, of super funds need to, you know, I guess, have a balance um, in terms of getting a good return for their retirement and and super funds have to be wary that they don't go and invest in projects that that get, that are you know might sound nice or feel good because they are ESG type investments but if there's a huge risk involved in terms of the technology behind you know some of these investments and 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 then the thinking behind these investments then then you might have you know super funds losing a lot of money do, do the economics stack up in a lot of the renewables, you know, in terms of its ability to to generate power at a, at a, at a reasonable price and, and be able to sell, obviously, to, to some other source? Yeah, I guess, I guess um, renewables on their own are not sufficient. I mean, if you, if you have load problems and stuff with electricity, you need to perhaps have a, you know, a gas-fired um, you know, generator kicking in. So renewables on their own um, cannot, um, you know, provide all the electricity needs of Australia. So we need to have a mix, you know, and, and that's why, you know, fossil fuels will be important for, for a long time. Um, we might have solar, we might have these feed-in tariffs and people connecting their solar into the grid. 
uh, that might work, you know, in a small scale operation. But if there's a power surge or anything like that, or, or at nighttime, or, or you have suddenly like a dust storm, for example, right, that mm-hmm. blocks the sun out. I mean, you might have some issues, you know, with, with a sudden overhang of clouds for days, or, you know, then you might have an issue with, with, with solar. So you need to have a backup. It's like having a backup generator. Like in a hospital, right, you have a backup generators. You know, in an operating theater, you need to have backup energy. So the same thing um, applies to if you want to have continuous and reliable energy, we need to have fossil fuels uh, backing up the, the renewables. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there's many people who are listening to this getting outraged about uh, the need for, for fossil fuels and hoping that we continue to, to move towards this renewable future. But you know, this is why we have the conversation, just to, to give people a bit more of a, a backdrop. The, the area that you haven't touched on yet, and I'm not sure how much work you've done, is in the nuclear space um, or different forms of nuclear that I've, I've seen popping up. Have you looked at that area? No, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, a specialist. I've not looked into that to comment on that. But I guess, I mean, just going by what's happened in Japan and and what's happened in in Germany, you know, the move away from nuclear. I know France still has some dependency on nuclear, um, and the proponents of nuclear in Australia say, hey, we have so much land, so much, um, you know, landfill opportunity to dump nuclear waste that we should be looking for a nuclear option. So I mean, there are there are. I mean, as I said, it, at the end of the day, it's it's a, it's a matter of the getting the scientific community and the you know experts in in these fields to get together. But personally, um, I th- I don't think nuclear is an option for Australia. Mm-hmm. Is there any other new types of uh, fuel cell or fusion energy that that that's out there that that does have some promise that you, you've you've come across? Um, yeah, there is. There, there are. There are certain. I mean, even even with hydrogen, um, even producing it from rust. I mean, there was a recent paper by some Japanese professors who come up with ways of, of generating hydrogen from rust. So these are these are all like initial stages. I mean, the the the, the important thing is economies of scale, right? I mean, till you have economies of scale, you won't you know you won't be able to sell that, or the costs of having that is going to be huge. And then if you're talking about electricity, I mean, we're always fighting to keep our bills down, uh, our electricity costs down. So without fossil fuels or bringing in these technologies, which are like a few years away, um, it's just going to increase the cost. So, I mean, fuel cell um, is, is, you know, for cars and stuff. Yes, that is, there's, there's a lot of space in that. There's even like cars where, where the energy is being generated in the wheel. So the actual, the turning of the wheel actually charges up the battery so you don't have to go and charge it at a at a charge point the wheel itself will will continuously charge the battery as you drive so these are these there are there are all these um technologies uh, and 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 institutions that are researching you know various alternatives for for electric vehicles but that's still a way i think the your normal battery operated vehicle is probably you know the the your nearest bet in terms of moving towards an electric vehicle mm-hmm. so last last question around sort of um how to sort of get more renewables back into the system you know i'm curious on your thoughts around sort of whether there's various levies that need to be you know pay, placed on some of the fossil fuels or some other incentive credits that need to come in Curious on sort of how to balance that out to maybe fast track some parts of development um, of renewables. 
Yeah, I mean, again, I'm I'm not I'm not an expert to comment on the on the on this, but I would say it would have to be a combination of government subsidies. I mean, people always say, yeah, get rid of fossil fuels, but if the government imposes some sort of an environmental emissions levy or tax onto their you know onto their income or into onto their annual tax uh, filing, then are people going to be happy with that? I mean, everybody wants to go green, but you know, when when it comes to actually paying for this green energy, uh, people are going to be willing to put you know some sort of a levy you know or, or to contribute to this to this roadmap to to green energy. So um, you know, it's it's but it would it would have to be subsidised. But I don't know exactly what the government's uh, intentions are at the moment. I mean, we just hear about subsidies, but we don't really hear about any more detailed as to how these subsidies would be used to support renewables. Yeah, it's an incredible place when when everyone has a particular ideology or, or a dream that they have, and then ultimately they need to pay for it. Um, and there's there's a lot of questions about how much are people willing to pay, and then there's the whole push for maintaining um, the economy on its on its current uh, trajectory. So you know, cost is always a big part of it. But that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Lauren. Thank you, thank you, Alex. Have a good day. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.